Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Ronan Givon, CEO of Recce, the mobile ordering app for chefs. Ronan created Recce after spending 10 years running restaurants in London. He was one of the founders of Hummus Brothers, and he saw firsthand how little grasp many restaurants have on their food costs. Recce is trying to change that. So Ronan talks to me about the challenges chefs are experiencing right now due to inflation, which ingredients are trending and which are becoming hard to get hold of, the cultural role of restaurants and how that's changed after COVID, and why menu engineering shouldn't be a dirty word. Enjoy the show. Ronan, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. This is a new experience for me. We're recording this on Monday, the 11th of July, 2022. What are you up to this week? What's on your plate? What's not on my plate? Um, Preparing for the summer. um, Various various plates uh, spinning and sort of projects and features that we're hoping to to get out. And obviously summer is a a time when... uh, people so everybody sort of goes away and so you have to deal with uh, sort of 50 percent capacity most of the time and so just trying to uh to kind of uh, get that in good order um for the summer that's what's on my mind fantastic and you're the founder and ceo of a startup called recce which is a mobile app for chefs to help them source ingredients and find suppliers and i'm really interested in the story behind recce we'll talk a little bit about what you're up to these days but i think the backstory here is important because you used to run restaurants in london for many years you used to own hummus brothers uh, for example what was it that you saw and experienced during your time running restaurants that made you decide to launch Recce? So first of all, it's, it's important to, to say that I didn't come from the hospitality industry. I studied computer science at university and the, the foray into restaurants was more because we wanted to, and I wanted to sort of own my own business and you know try that out uh, and be my own boss and, 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 and try to do lots of things and, and, and restaurants. It's a great business for that because you take a raw ingredient, you process it, you sell it, you market it, uh, you employ people, and you really have to know everything because you can't pay anyone to do it. And so I have to learn how to, you know, do accounting and all of that stuff. And so I kind of fell into restaurants uh, because of the love of food, but I really didn't know anything about restaurants when we started. I hadn't even worked as a waiter, let alone like a chef, before starting it. Started with a, a university friend of mine and my brother. Um, and we kind of made up the rules as we went along. Now, of course, because we were computer scientists, we built a whole bunch of systems for the restaurants, uh, uh, starting from the POS into a whole bunch of other um, 
systems. And uh, that was an invaluable experience, uh, uh, building systems for our own staff and seeing what they're, what they're using and what they're not using. Um, we ran the restaurant for, I specifically was in the restaurant for about 10 years, which is a really long time. We are, uh, um, and, and, it was, and it was a grind. And the only thing that sort of uh, kept us from for, like continuing the, on this journey is that we were just like um, addicted to the customer, you know, to, to, you know, the customer contact there, you know, making, putting smiles on people's faces. Now, little did we know, that restaurants is one of these things that a lot of people think that they can do, but to do well and to actually make profitable, that is a completely different story, right? And so for 10 years, we were, you know, uh, grinding away at trying to create a successful business. By the eighth or ninth year of Humus Brothers, we had uh, six fixed branches and then another three mobile teams that were going to all sorts of uh, banks and uh, accountancy firms, etc. There were 80 people there and we were still sort of hovering around the sort of break-even point. Sometimes we were making a little bit of money, sometimes we lost money, and, and it was just not, it wasn't sort of, you know, becoming a better and better business as it should be sort of over time. And the biggest learning for me uh, uh, was when I started to focus on our food costs and really stopped looking at everything else, at staff and the chefs and the rents and, you know, the toilets that break down on a daily basis and just looked at our food costs. Within a month or so, we, we sort of moved from hovering around the break-even to actually making proper money. Um, and it was, that really shook my world. I simultaneously felt like uh, um, the dumbest person in the world, because how does it take eight years for someone to realize that that is actually what they should have done? But also felt like maybe I'm the smartest person in the world for actually figuring out how independent uh, restaurants can make money. Uh, so um, that was kind of a seismic event. And at that point, I, 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 I kind of realized that maybe the food cost is the key to a restaurant's profitability. And that is when I started to look at why were we not doing food costs better? Why were we not able to sort of uh, uh, connect with new suppliers and, and, and uh, uh, you know, get better pricing or start buying in bulk? You know, our chefs, give an example, our chefs in the kitchen were ordering lemons by each, right? Whereas if you buy two thirds of a box of lemons loose, you're paying pretty much the same price as a full box of lemons if you buy it whole because the wholesale supplier doesn't want to break the box. Um, and so they charge you for it. But the chefs, well, they don't care and they don't know. And so they're just ordering each because that's what they need. Lemons last for two, three weeks. You know, so there's no issue buying a whole box of it. There was a complete disconnection between what the kitchen was doing to actually the economics. And given that that is what determined our um, profitability, I found that to be just absurd. And so I set out to, to, to um, try and solve that problem. And the way we tried to solve it is, uh, first of all, create an ordering app uh, that chefs would love to use, unlike all the other systems that were out there uh, before, because there were lots of systems out there for sending orders from the chefs to the, to the wholesale suppliers, but none of them were used. And as soon as I looked at those systems, it was very obvious why they were not used. They looked like something like a chore. They looked like an Excel. And when you're chopping tomatoes all day, you're not going to look at an Excel at midnight. You know what I mean? You just want to go home. So you just pick up the phone, you call. As a result, the orders are analog. You can't get 
you can't do anything with them. You don't know what the prices are. You don't know that you're buying lemons each, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the first thing we, we said was let's build an app that chefs would love and uh, would never stop using, uh, almost like consumer grade. Um, and then on top of that, we'll give them uh, the power of choice. We'll put the entire market in front of them uh, in a transparent way, and they'll be able to to see all the suppliers that are available. Um, uh, and uh, it, it, even on your existing suppliers, you, you don't usually know what they sell. Like in order to know what they sell, you have to dig up the email where they emailed you the catalog and do, a, do control F and search for something. And then, then you have to call them. And then it's just like, well, their catalog should be somewhere where I could just like browse it if I'm looking for it. Pig's ears, I shouldn't have to call the supplier and ask them, do you do pig's ears? You know, just, just buy it. Um, so that was the plan. Uh, um, and that's what we've uh, sort of, we set out to do in 2016, which was when uh, the company uh, uh, properly started building. And we didn't properly get a product up until sort of mid 2016. Um, we tried it with a bunch of places. Actually, the first few users were retail, uh, were little convenience stores that had like a vegetable stand. And after that, um, uh, we saw very quickly that people were just continuing to use this thing and it was better than what they were doing before. And then it started to um, accelerate and accelerate. And now we're um, in uh, 10 countries, um, uh, our biggest country is UK, but also the US and, uh, and more countries. So yeah, that was that in a nutshell. <laughs> I have so many questions. I think it's fascinating. One thing I'm really interested in is in understanding what you did about the user experience that meant your app was something that people were actually willing to use, as you say, not just once, but over and over again. What was your analysis of what was wrong with the other apps and what did you change in terms of UX? Yeah. So it was, this comes back to my, the experience that I had at Holmes Brothers building systems for my own stuff, because we built tens of different systems, maybe 30, 40 different systems that we built. Only three of them were actually used. Right, so I could see how you built 40 and only three are used. You could see the trends. What things will the chefs use? What will they not use, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as I saw that food cross was such an important part and I started to look at what's out there, it was very, very clear that whoever built those other apps had not worked a second of their life behind the counter, behind the counter of a restaurant or in a kitchen. They just do not understand. You know, it's, first of all, it's built for desktop. It looks like Excel. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 now, when you're when you're chopping tomatoes or doing your mise en place or whatever it is, it's very stressful. It's you don't have you don't have time. You're, you you don't even there is no computer even there, let alone like anything else. And when you try to when, and when you work in the kitchen for ten hours, you get to the twelfth to the eleventh hour, and you're looking at a screen with a whole bunch of numbers, the what's called the context switch is so high. That you just don't want to do it. And then you, you fall back to what you're used to, which is WhatsApp, phone, et cetera, et cetera. So when people say, when people told me initially, when I did the research, that, oh, I'm old school. I like to call my supplier. What turned out is that they were calling their supplier and leaving a, leaving a voicemail on the other side. They weren't actually speaking to anyone. So they just fell, fell back to, fall back was the phone and what they knew. So what we did was like, well, let's, not create a context switch. Let's create an app that will not pr uh, 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 be a context switch for these people. And so we built it looking and feeling like WhatsApp, 
or or sort of a list of chats because that was really really um, you know still is you know sort of the, the preferred uh, way for people to communicate at least, at least in this country. And so he said, well, if we make something that works and looks and feels like WhatsApp, it will not be seen by the user to be a context switch, and so they would use it. And that is exactly what happened. It is a WhatsApp. It, it started off as this is WhatsApp for your suppliers. So each chat is you and your team and your suppliers. And you can uh, place orders and you can also just type straight in the chat. And, and that's it. And we'll take care of the fact that it gets there and confirming the order, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that, did the, that, that, that was it. That we, we saw that immediately with our first one or two users. It's just you gave it to them and they just didn't stop. They placed, their, they placed their order and then more and more. And then they started using it with their other suppliers. And they just felt like it fit within their, felt within their day. You didn't, they didn't have to go to a desktop, that's number one, but that's almost like a given. But then what they were presented with is not something that looks like a business tool. It looks like a personal tool, which I use all the time. Consumer grade, it's snappy, it works fast. It works like I expected. It doesn't look like some business tool. And then they just started, uh, continued using it. That was our um, angle. We sort of uh, built something for the chef uh, to manage a restaurant, but we were not. We were not trying to onboard a business to our app. We were onboarding a chef, uh, uh, and then yes, they were by. They were ordering on behalf of a restaurant, but it is a personal profile uh, of a chef. How did you get the suppliers to? come on board with this because I completely get the advantage from the chef's point of view and especially as you said you know that kind of visibility across different suppliers really understanding where are you spending the money are you getting the best price and all of that from a supplier point of view perhaps that level of transparency isn't necessarily something that works in in your favor and also I guess um it means they are having to change the way they're perhaps used to working with, with various chefs. How did you work with suppliers to get them to buy into this idea? Our strategy was, first of all, we're going to, we knew that in this industry, it is all about like, it's, it's trust. Like you really have to, you're not just going to go with someone and whatever, uh, you know, you have to work out, you have to work with some people uh, before. And so we said, look, the first three years, we're just here to acquire the chefs to get their trust so that this app will continue and, you know, support them and they'll get their goods the next day. And we're also going to show the suppliers that we can add value to them without charging them a penny. Okay. And so the way that the app was built is you place an order and actually it just goes, it, that's on the shift side. And then it goes to the, to, to the supplier and it just, it, it converts into an email. That email goes into the supplier, which sometimes has an attachment with the, with the uh, uh, products in a sort of a, in Excel sheet, so they can import it to their to their uh, system, and it was immediately superior to what they were getting before, which was voicemail. Uh, uh, half of which the chef doesn't forgets even to say who they are at the, <laughs> at the end of the call, and then you have to you have to like guess based on what they order where who they are, uh, uh, etc. So it was causing uh, a lot of headache for them just to process it. So the first two or three years, we didn't charge suppliers anything, and we just said we're going to prove to you that we actually are trying to uh, uh, make the industry as a whole better off, not just uh, to take from you to give to the restaurants. This was not our angle. Uh, uh, we don't try to say, oh, the suppliers are, doing, are not doing justice to their buyers or the buyers are not doing justice to their suppliers. We just think the system, system is broken. It could work a lot better in a way that both, both the restaurants and their suppliers will be better off. And so... Just like when running the restaurant, when someone tries to uh, sell me something, I always told them, well, you've got to prove to me that this thing is like, good, we did that. We just said, here, chefs, there's a, 
there's a free app you can place your orders suppliers we're going to send it you're going to we're going to send you the orders in a way that's 10 times better than what you receive them already yes might not be perfect it's going to be 10 times better than what you receive already and then we'll build trust with you um and so that's what we did for the first three years we raised a venture venture funding uh, knew that we were not going to charge from day one because this is uh these are this industry is uh you know suppliers and, and and restaurants are very street smart they're not just like there to be taken for a ride um and so we decided to yeah we act first and and, and we gave value and then we bought the trust of a lot of suppliers uh here across the pond in europe etc cetera, etc cetera, um, making their processing easier and then after that we were able to you know step into their office and say hey now we can now we can um uh, offer you other things such as you can win your business if you want and and it's if you want you don't have to if you don't want to participate that's okay but by that point it was um we're big enough and have built enough goodwill that um uh suppliers had trusted us and uh sort of started to work with us um so that was kind of the strategy and how how does the business model work now um is the sort of core functionality still free and then it's the sort of add-on that you where you where you charge talk me through how how you make money out of this eventually yeah so um the core functionality is yes you can the app is free you can download it you can order from any supplier pretty much we work with any supplier uh, around the world and we monitor all of these orders right so we monitor and make sure that the orders get there and they get confirmed and the delivery happen etc etc we then have what we call pro suppliers uh, pro suppliers are um, uh, uh, their their uh, restaurants are paying them through the platform, and they potentially also found them through the platform. So you can either add your existing suppliers and pay them in various ways. So you can pay in thirty days time or on credit card or on direct debit, uh, uh, etc. Um, or you can find new and then pay them. And the pro suppliers is a subset of uh, uh, the total suppliers in the UK. Um, and we are trying to make it as good as as good as possible for them in terms of winning new business uh, and increasing the basket of their um, existing customers. So if you're a supplier on Reiki and you're a pro supplier, the app constantly tries to um, upsell to your customers in terms of like, here's new products that they sell that allows the supplier to promote, but also automatically just exposes the catalog to them and lets, them, lets you, the chef, sort of explore other things that this supplier does. So if you're a pro supplier, you win your business. And when once you win it, the app tries to get more and more of that spent to you. Um, and so it should be, you said in you said in the, uh, a couple of minutes ago, the value proposition to the chef was a kind of a no-brainer. In fact, the value proposition now to the supplier is, mm. I would say, even more of a no-brainer because they win your business and it, it, it just continues to sort of upsell. And so if, if they have a, uh sales and processing and sort of credit control team uh, uh what's for sure is that they can grow their business double the size with the same number of people they they do not need to sort of scale that team or if you're a small supplier and do you don't have that you can do without it as well uh because it you know gets you customers it gets you paid and it gets you stare straight into their into your system and we have a whole bunch of uh, examples uh, in London, in particular, where small suppliers are just running very in a very lean fashion, which means they can give better pricing, which means they get better rating, which means they can focus on 
just getting the best goods and delivering it with the best, you know, with the best customer service and not everything around it. All the invoicing is done, all the pricing is done. Um, both restaurants and the suppliers are better off, which is sort of our what we're trying to do, you know, not, not a zero-sum game, if you like. And and do those suppliers that become pro suppliers, do they pay you a subscription fee or do you get yes. a cut of whatever order value they sell through you? They get we get a percentage of what they sell through us. Correct. Got it. Uh, and that of course includes uh, this uh, sort of payment fees and all that, right? We process the whole transaction. Yeah. How many suppliers do you have on your platform and how many chefs use the platform these days? Uh, a few thousand uh, suppliers, depending on which country. Uh, I would say that we probably have 90% coverage in the UK in terms of UK suppliers. Um, and chefs, uh, over 5,000, uh, 5, let's put it that way, in the UK. One of the things that I think was is really interesting about what you do and that immediately um, kind of came to mind when I prepared for our conversation is, you know, as you know, my background is writing about the grocery retail industry more than the food service industry. But grocery takes so much inspiration from food service. I mean, there must be a considerable percentage of um, food service customers or restaurant customers in London who must just be people uh, from the grocery retail industry scouting for new NPD ideas. You must have so much fantastic data going through your platform where you can really see ingredients that are trending, demand rising and, and falling off. What do you do with that insight at the moment? And are there any plans to make it available to third parties as, as sort of trend reports, data or insight? So to answer your second question first, I, we don't have plans to sort of share it with anyone. We see it a lot more valuable to recommend it to the, to the restaurant next door that they should be buying something than we do to the outside world. Uh, I see the restaurant industry as the fertilizer for the food ecosystem. It is restaurants, and that's pretty much what you were saying. Restaurateurs are in the forefront of experimentation. They are very, very close to the land, to their suppliers, and to what is currently sort of in season. And they have the freedom to try it out. But no, what, what we prefer to do when we, see, when we have trends, and the app is built that way, is it tries to sort of recommend that to other people like you, Right. So if you have sushi restaurants and there's a sort of and there's a sort of a trend, you might you might start to see sort of various products uh, being recommended to you that might be sort of hot at the moment or, or trending or so. What are some interesting trending um, ingredients that, that are really heating up on your platform at the moment? What are you really seeing lots of interest in? There's a lot of uh, UK grown vegetables, uh, obviously, because of, uh, you know, Brexit and supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing uh, vegetable suppliers in particular that have sort of that are either affiliated or uh, have their own farm uh, doing really, really well. Right. Because because chefs are being more creative and there's, you know, and food prices, et cetera. And so they're going for the stuff that's just locally grown because it is economically uh, better to do so. And that's just like that, that. That's great. So that that's one with regards to UK uh, um, uh, grown vegetables. The other is a huge push within sushi and generally just sushi grade fish and all of the condiments around it is another massive trend. There's just a lot of interest in sort of Japanese type uh, um, uh, produce. 
uh, aged fish is another one. A lot of aged meat is another. I mean, look, there's, there's, there's endless. It depends. In each, in each category, there's something else. You know, in chemicals, it's all about like sustainable, uh, um, not sustainable, sorry, uh, more eco-friendly, mm-hmm. uh, less harmful sort of chemicals. In fish, it's the sushi and the aged fish. In meat, it is definitely the aged fish and the provenance, the aged meat and the provenance. In vegetables, it's locally grown. I can continue. <laughs> and you've already talked about um, chefs being naturally very creative, but they're also having to be especially creative in the current climate um, because it's become really, really difficult to source certain ingredients uh, and others are uh, becoming pretty much unaffordable, um, which leads us to the first article that you picked for our conversation, which is from The Observer. And the headline is UK's star chefs get creative to keep menu prices down. Uh, This is essentially about menu engineering and that creativity of, you know, identifying um, alternatives that can be put into a dish that work just as well, but that end up being uh, cheaper and and more economical. Um, There are all sorts of interesting examples in this um, article, mackerel and hake instead of salmon, cod and sea bream, for example, or implementing zero waste policies using trimmings in soups, sauces and pies, really pushing that uh, desire to avoid waste even further than is already happening. Um, All of which sounds really enterprising and very exciting, but there are also some uh, less fun changes that chefs have been forced to make, keeping restaurants shut on certain days because of staff shortages, uh, for example, or reducing the number of items on the menu. Um, there is so much in this article because hospitality is facing pressure from so many different angles at the moment, and so chefs are having to respond to, to lots of different pressures. What about this article stood out to you? Why did you pick this? I see it. They... Every day. I think it, well, the way it should be is that you look at the market in a whole, it's like, what can I get at this point? And that there is efficient allocation of uh, resources. Whatever was caught is being sold and eaten. Whatever was harvested would be, you know, is, is going into, into the dishes. Um, it's also, it coincides with COVID having made, you know, COVID and it's all connected. Of course, COVID, mm. the, labor, the labor crisis is, is, is that, that worries me terribly at this point. It's, 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 it's crazy. But what it meant is that the, the uh, chefs uh, uh, are now being, you know, sort of elevated uh, uh, from, I just need to like make the food into some, we, we now need to like rely on you a lot more because uh, uh, prices are going nuts. It's not just about like getting that sea bass in, grilling it and shipping it off on a on a plate now you actually you know now you actually uh, uh, can add a lot more value as a result i think chef salaries have gone up also because there's less less sort of left chefs chefs around and i think that's great up until this point chefs chefs were absolutely the sort of you know the the work is unbelievably difficult unbelievably to grind and i did it because you know uh, six months into running Kumus brothers our chefs just our chefs just uh, left so I had to just step in the kitchen, run the kitchen for six months. And it was just like unbelievably difficult. And it is high time that chefs start to be valued now. OK, they're valued because of supply short. But more importantly, now when they have to actually exercise a lot more of their creativity around the menu, they now become real experts in their domain. And there's a lot more uh, 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 pride in it. Right. In a way, sometimes in, in the rest of in France and Italy, a lot more pride with regards to like being a chef and being in hospitality. Well, 
UK chefs now have the, 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 the chance to really show that, yes, they are worth the 50% increase in wages that, that uh, they just got. That's great. It's not just, oh, there aren't chefs around. It's like, no, this, this person actually knows how to, uh, you know, make a menu uh, profitable but uh, excite and exciting uh, for people. When you look at what chefs want to buy at the moment, what they want to source through your platform, what is really difficult to get hold of at the moment? What's the big headache for chefs? I think it depends. It, it, it's more on the sort of the pricing mm. stuff. So salmon, for example, you know, I said sushi grade fish and stuff. That's been that's been up and down like crazy. You know, we went from, you know, five pounds a kilo to about ten pounds a kilo on salmon. I'm talking like whole salmon, right? Not not even like the fillet part of it. You know, just like doubling of, of it. And so that's a, what do you do now? Is it trout? Is it like how do you? Yeah, it becomes it, it's you just you just can't get it. Um, basic ingredients uh just going up in price and so yes you can get them but you know can you pay double the price for vegetable oil Mm. well it starts to become well fried food isn't that cheap anymore you know now the oil's double the price i wouldn't say that it's completely uh, uh, you can always get everything in a way that's also part of my sort of beef uh, for lack of a better word with the uk supply chains they can get anything at any point in time you can always get strawberries country and avocado and everything and that in a way sort of uh the consumer is then used to just having everything in in, in abundance in some ways it's, it's great in other ways uh, uh uh the chefs can do less with that because everybody's just expecting avocado on toast all the time so everything is available but the prices are some are, are become are some somewhat prohibitive uh, uh for some menus especially on the quick uh, qsr side um and so they have to be creative And it kind of, I think, links in a way to the second article that I was keen to talk to you about, which is one I picked, um, but it it relates quite nicely to what we've just been chatting about. This is from The Guardian, and the headline says, Cancelled flight, shoddy clothing, disappointing meal, blame skimpflation, the hidden curse of 2022. And in a way, it's sort of the dark side of the creativity that we've just been talking about. Uh, Skimpflation is a term that originally came from the US. It basically means managing inflation by skimping on quality. Uh, So it's similar to shrinkflation, which uh, my my listeners from grocery retail will be very familiar with, where you shrink pack sizes to keep prices low. This is basically a much wider range of of quality compromises, essentially, that uh, that you you might do. And it can be cheaper ingredients. It can be... um, asking shoppers to navigate crowded supermarket aisles because you've cut your night shifts um, and you're just asking staff to replenish during the day. So it really touches lots of different sectors in in many ways. Um, And it talks about menu engineering as well. There's some sort of interesting bits and bobs in there talking about, you know, potentially slicing food more thinly and putting it uh, on the plate at an angle so it covers a little bit more of the plate. Um, The reason I was really keen to talk to you about this, because as I said, it does feel like it's shining a light on, on on a potential darker side of that creativity. Yes, people are being creative and that can be a very good thing, but I guess it needs to be done with transparency and consumers need to understand exactly what they're getting and what potentially has been, uh, has been compromised on or has been changed. And with ingredient swaps, that's relatively straightforward because you would expect to be told about it on the menu. But if perhaps, you know, certain dishes have been bulked out a little bit more with vegetables or things have been sliced slightly differently, the consumer may not understand exactly 
how things have changed. Do you think chefs need to be careful with how far they're potentially pushing the menu engineering and the creativity? It is absolutely the chef's job to engineer the menu. Yes. Now, when when the sort of the article pointed to a number of places where that engineering was just not done in a good in a good way. I'll give you the best example. You know, Corbin and King had, you know, that, that restaurant in Marleybone with the, you know, the Austrian sort of place. One of the foods that has the best GPs anywhere is a flattened piece of meat. Okay, thin, this thin with a whole layer of batter around it and placed on this big plate so it looks really big. It is, that is menu engineering done really, really well, okay? And nobody looks at it, you know, nobody bats an eyelid for paying 25 pounds for a schnitzel. That is done properly. I think this article pointed to the fact of some people that were just not doing it uh, mm. uh, correctly because it is the essence of a chef to exploit the difference between what the, uh, what the customer, how the customer values the dish Versus what it costs, the perceived value of the dish, the difference between that and the actual value of the dish is a chef's job. It's not like an anomaly or a bug. It is a chef's job. And so if they don't do it correctly and they just like fill it with a whole bunch of cheap ingredients and it doesn't actually enhance the taste or anything, they've just done it, done it badly, <laughs> I would say. But it is completely in the chef, the chef to engineer the menu such that the restaurant will be profitable. There's a common misconception that restaurants are this, you know, people go into them. And I did as well, you know, for a romantic reason, just like in love with this, like putting smiles on people's faces and making them feel, uh, you know, full, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it is a business. And it takes something, it took me years until I realized this is a business, not just like we're here for our customers to, to serve them. It has to be a business. And so that menu engineering, that, 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 all of that, should sit in the in the chef's head, and that is where they can really add value. So, if they don't do it, if they don't do it correctly, you get examples examples like that. If they do it correctly, we hail them as like you know the the geniuses, and they win Michelin stars. In a way, you you're reclaiming the term menu engineering because it some it does have a little bit of a sort of hint of of being a dirty word almost. But you. As you said very clearly, you think there should be absolute pride in menu engineering done well. If you are already disassembling that dish in your head in mm. front of you, the chef has already failed. If you are just seeing that chicken uh, breast in front of you and you still think it's just about chicken breast, then you've then you already fa- you've already fa- you failed, right? The chef has failed because you should be receiving it with a sort of this, this of like, course, you know what yeah. it's like. You go into a nice restaurant and sit there and that dish just arrived and you just got like that high. You don't getting that high and you're seeing this is just a sum of its part, parts. This is like some milk and some onion and some chicken thing. Ah, I can whip this up and it's like, it just cost me five quid. The chef has failed. It should not be that. It, going into a restaurant is an experience. To me, bad menu engineering is just, you just didn't do it very well because the good restaurants, I can tell you they're really, really on their food costs and they're doing more menu engineering than anyone. You just don't see it because they've done their job properly. And when you don't, then it looks like, uh, okay, chicken breast with some butter in it. Uh, well, I can do that. But it's just that's just bad food. Speaking of independent restaurants that have that wonderful hustle and bustle and, and that real kind of heart, takes us nicely to the final article which uh, you've picked. This one is from the Times and the headline is Imad's Syrian Kitchen Restaurant Review, The Damascus Chef in Soho. This is a Marina Olaflin review of 
Imad Al Arnab's restaurant in Soho, which he opened after fleeing from Syria with the equivalent of 12 quid in his pocket. It's the most extraordinary story. It's had lots of coverage um, internationally um, as well. But uh, Marina describes it as follows, and I think it's probably just worth getting a, a sense of this. Uh, so he arrived in Calais underweight and hungry. Uh, there, he and 13 other Syrians slept on a church step for 64 days. He fed more than 50 fellow refugees daily from a single gas burner, keeping spirits up thanks to others' small acts of kindness. And ultimately, that extraordinary journey culminated in this wonderful restaurant opening in, in Soho that's been getting lots of rave reviews and attention from all over the world and is also getting an incredibly positive review uh, from, from Marina, who recommends it heartily. Um, and she says of uh, this entire journey, and it really is an appropriate time to talk about this as a journey. I know the word is a little bit overused, as she says as well in the article, but it's, she describes it as a perfect example of how restaurants of even the most ad hoc nature will sprout up under the most challenging circumstances, places for people to gather and share and feel like members of the human race. Ronan, why did this resonate with you? Why did you pick this article? On two levels. One, which is a very obvious level, which is I had my first restaurant, Who's Brothers, uh, uh, was effectively a Middle Eastern type food, pretty similar to what Imad is, what Imad is doing. Uh, and it was in Soho. Selling Mediterranean food, uh, Middle Eastern food uh, in Soho was like uh, uh, right up my street. Um, and of course, the, 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 the sort of the, the personal journey of, of uh, someone like that, just like fleeing that, that is of course, uh, you know, fleeing the, that, that uh, terrible war and, and arriving here with not, not only nothing in your pocket, but you know, risking your, your life, et cetera, et cetera, um, is just, uh, just inspiring. Um, so there's, that's the obvious part of it, which is what Marina sort of spoke about. <clears throat> The less obvious uh, thing, which she alludes to towards the end, is more about restaurants uh, renew, like where do restaurants sit in today's uh, culture? And I think the answer is different post-COVID than it was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, well, you go out to a restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. Now we say that, uh, you know, you never appreciate something until it's taken away from you. Well, we just really didn't appreciate restaurants up until COVID. And then it got taken away from us, you know, uh, um, for, for us, you know, March, 2020 will be remembered as, you know, in one day, suddenly all of our user base just stopped using the app pretty much. And so restaurants were taken away from us. And throughout COVID, after a year or so, if you asked anyone, what are they most, uh, wait, what are, the, what are they most looking forward to? It was not what you currently call culture, okay, or what you commonly call as culture, which is galleries, theaters, you know, uh, 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 museums, et cetera, et cetera. Most of the people said, I want to go to a restaurant. Like now, I need the connection with the outside. I need the connection with people, et cetera, et cetera. And so restaurants post-COVID are, in my opinion, the most uh, uh, important uh, uh, component of culture in today's urban society. When you think about Barcelona, why would you like to go to Barcelona? Is it Gaudi or the tapas? Well, I'd say most of the population would say tapas before they say Gaudi. And so this, this uh, uh, Syrian uh, kitchen really sort of shows how um, the new place of restaurants uh, sort of in, in today's culture. It is it, the excitement and the sort of the attention that this, that this place gets is, it just fills my heart with, with, with happiness because 
it's finally the unsung heroes, the people with, uh, you know, the dirty fingernails, I call them, you know, the hard workers, just like grafting and grinding. And I was one of them, of course, for years. Um, now suddenly are in the spotlight because they provide a service that nothing, nothing else does. And how confident are you that this sort of renewed appreciation of restaurants is going to survive a cost of living crisis because of course there are lots of people now who may very much value restaurants but who are going to be priced out of them with the best will in the world with all the menu engineering and all the ingenuity that that chefs can bring there will be lots of people who are just not going to be able to to eat out as much um or who will choose to cut back on on eating out is that something you're concerned about at all i think it's okay that people potentially eat out less and make it more of a special occasion. Mm. It absolutely needs to be a, a, a more of a special occasion. Uh, I know firsthand how difficult it is, how much work, when you sit there in a restaurant and a dish is put in front of you, you do not think about how much work has gone into producing that dish. And then all the way to the end of the cycle when that plate is then, uh, you know, put in a, in, a, in, a, in a waiter station and it's ready for the, for, for the next dish. The amount of work required to just put that thing there to the quality that you're expecting absolutely has its sort of value. And so, yes, potentially people will will go out less. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that, you know, if it's priced correctly, because on the flip side, I ran restaurant for eight or nine years and didn't barely managed to pay myself. Mm. So, yes, maybe people got cheap food, but I was, you know, I was not able to put food on my table at home. That's not sustainable either. Right. So um, I think that this is a little bit of a correction uh, 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 for people to see restaurants for what they are, which is an experience. This is not a commodity food. You want a commodity food, uh, that's a a supermarket for it. Right. You you buy it, you you cook it yourself. When you come to a restaurant, it is an experience and it is you you don't go to to, to the opera every day as well. Right. Because it costs 300 pounds to go there. Why not? Well, because it is a special occasion. And so I, I, I'm not too worried. Yes, there might be a correction of less people, less uh, visits. I hope that the actual uh, um, GDP of restaurants will go up, though, because there's renewed sort of uh, prestige and sort of levels and quality levels sort of go up. I, 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 I'm encouraged by that. Now, we are nearly out of time. But before I let you go, I just want to talk a little bit about what's next for Recce. What is in the pipeline for the second half of the year? What are you really excited about in terms of next steps and plans for expansion? Yeah, so um, first of all, we want to complete the UK. In other words, you know, we want to have every independent restaurant uh, and wholesale supplier on our platform uh, in the UK. Um, And then we want to go, uh, we want to expand to some of our other cities where we're, like already which is you know the us and the rest of europe um but for the next few months we are very much sort of focusing on uh creating what you know i started to think about seven or eight years ago which is uh um uh, giving restaurants uh, the sort of the power of choice uh uh, to work with suppliers and buying sort of the the units that they're used that they want to uh, and making it seamless from the supplier side, you know, creating a, a marketplace in general uh, is a non-zero-sum game. It should add value to both sides. 
both the suppliers need to be better off and the restaurants are better off, uh, should be better off. This is what we're seeing and we want the entire UK to enjoy that. Um, and then after that, it's uh, then it's overseas. We have quite a few thousands of users overseas in other countries and um, we will go and sort of uh, switch on some of the features that we've built uh, for the UK market over there. Fantastic. Ronan, if people want to connect with you to find out more about Recce and, and what you're up to, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, they can go on our website. If they want to if they want to email me directly, they can just send it to ronan at recce.com um, and I'll, I'll get the email. I'm pretty easy to get hold of. Fantastic. Ronan, thank you so much for coming on the show and being my guest. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.